Welcome to Heterodox Out Loud. I'm John Tomasi, the president of Heterodox Academy. On every episode, we'll be taking you on an exciting intellectual adventure, our journey across the complex and challenging terrain of open inquiry in higher education. You've been meeting leading college professors, some heterodox college presidents, and some entrepreneurial students too. Our aim is to give you an insider's view of the complex terrain of open inquiry in higher education, the perils and the possibilities too. So let's get ready for another adventure into heterodoxy. What is cancel culture? What are the mechanisms by which cancel culture has its force? And what might be done to fight back against some of the worst effects of cancel culture within the academy? Today in Heterodox Out Loud, we'll be talking with Greg Lukianov, the president of FIRE, about his new book, The Canceling of the American Mind. Let's see what Greg has to say. Greg Lukianov, welcome to Heterodox Out Loud. Uh, great to see you, John. Thanks so much for having me on. Big fan of your organization. Thank you. It's nice to have you here in the Center for Academic Pluralism. So um, we're going to talk with we'd like we're going to talk today about your new book, The Canceling of the American Mind, which you wrote with wrote with Ricky Schlott, um, which I just finished reading a couple of days ago and absolutely loved. Oh, it's just thank fantastic. You. It means just, a lot for me. It's great stuff. And um, let's just jump right into it. Sure. Should we do that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the canceling of the American mind is about cancel culture. Yeah. And uh, the books sort of follow the books in three big chunks. What is cancel culture? Um, a discussion about how it works and you know, the mm-hmm. mechanisms. And then a really interesting section at the end, not just in the, in the final third about, you know, what can be done about it? Yeah. And we're going to cover all three of those, all, all three of those areas. So let's start with um. With cancel culture, what, what what is it? Sure, I mean, uh, we we spent a lot of time covering like other people's definitions of cancel culture. You know, particularly, I think one of the best other definitions out there is Jonathan Rauch's seven part definition of cancel culture that he came out with in Constitution of Knowledge. It's fantastic. It's right? a it's a very good book. Um, big, big, uh, probably one of my favorite book of that year. Um, Should I tell you by the way, just to interrupt you that um, John Height and I sometimes talk about Jonathan Rauch's book as being like a Bible, and that we would make a little shrine to him around HXA because <laughs> because the idea of the epistemology and it's kind of it's just it's so interesting. Oh, no, that's I, I talk about that as well, because I, I was definitely one of the people being the most kind of like, you know, no, because fire really got behind constitutional knowledge because we were, you know, um, it, in the whole kind of first grade age of political correctness, which we're going to talk about a little bit later, um, the most intellectually satisfying book of that of that early era is Kindly Inquisitors by Jonathan Rauch. Yes. Um, and this is as a follow up to that. Um, it, it was you know thrilling for me. And I'm a First Amendment lawyer. So it's all right. about epistemology. I mean, That's basically right. like the history of science. It's, one of the, it's what brings freedom of speech and science all together is epistemology. And the idea that there are institutions, that they're epistemic institutions, mm-hmm. that we need them to tie us to reality as a society. Yeah. That's a Rauch. You know, that's a point that Jonathan Rauch makes so beautifully, I think, yes. and is such, with such power. But let's let's talk about what so cancel culture. What, what, how would you describe it? Sure. So um, what I'm trying to do is actually, since, since I'm a you know, like I said, First Amendment lawyer with a very big interest in censorship history, I'm trying to uh, establish it as the name for the era that we're currently in, and hopefully will be over sometime soon. Just the same way as we refer to you know um, the, the various other mass censorship um, incidents in American history, like the Red Scare, Red Scare One, Red Scare Two, also known as McCarthyism. Um, the Victorian era, the Sedition Act of 1798. Um, and the definition we use is, is, is a historical one. It's the uptick of campaigns starting around uh, um, uh, 2014 and accelerating in 2017 
of campaigns to get people fired, deplatformed, expelled, or otherwise punished for speech that would be protected by the First Amendment. Now, in the appendix, so as not to slow the definition down too much, I explained that what I'm working in there is more or less as an analogy to public employee law, where you're assumed to have um, some rights to speak as a citizen, um, but the rules, it also brings in a lot of common sense, kind of like, can you, you know, lead a revolt against your boss? No, that's well established in the law. And then the the final part of it is just saying, and the culture of fear that resulted from this uptick in, in, in campaigns to get people uh, punished. Good. And let me be sure I want one little piece of that. So yeah. people speak and people can reply. They can yep. disagree. They can argue and so on. But cancel culture really is that specific feature that it adds a certain kind of punishment. Punitive, or, yeah. Right. Okay, good. And um, I just want to read something from your book that a line that just picks up what you just said. Um, this is on page 28. You say that. Cancel culture is happening at such a scale that historians will be studying it in 50 years, in 50 to 100 years, much like we study the Red Scare and the Alien and Sedition Acts. Yeah. Again, that's a, a, kind of a striking point about where we are. And, and it's, it's definitely the one that people rightfully approach with the greatest skepticism. And so, um, but meanwhile, kind of like I'm, I have a piece hopefully coming out in the Atlantic relatively soon. Um, and you just show them the actual studies from the Red Scare and be like, well, actually, it was about 63 professors fired um, for communist beliefs, about 95 fired for belief overall. Wow. And wow. right now we're talking about um, about 100. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, sorry, about 200. No, uh, that's what I, I thought in the book you talked yeah, 189 or something. Yeah. As of now, we're, we're, we're at yeah, 189. Um, but by the end of the year, we're going to be a lot closer to 200, unfortunately. Right. And it's frustrating watching people who don't. There are a lot of people who think they know a lot about the situation for, for academic freedom on campus, but clearly don't know what the numbers ever look like. So um, I, I went to one of the most severe uh, mass censorship incidents, certainly on campus um, uh, ever, which is the, which is McCarthyism. But the next, you know, the, the period that I started um, at FIRE was 9-11. And there was an attack on academic freedom after 9-11. Yes. There, um, but people don't really seem to understand what a bad attack on academic freedom looks like prior to this era. There were 17 attempts to get professors fired. And that's bad, by the way, um, or, or punished in some 17 way. attempts in the wake of 9-11. In, from, from 2001 to 2006 for 9-11 and Iraq war-related speech. Interesting. Um, and three professors were fired, um, and all three of those were just were justified three things that didn't actually really implicate freedom of speech. But three three firings is a big deal. When you're talking about more like 200, and people are still saying that's that's nothing. I'm like, there is no other error you can point to, with the exception of some of the some of the horrifying stuff that happened in the 1930s with professors losing their jobs. Um, you can't really find another error like that. And by the way. Prior to 1957, it wasn't even clear that you couldn't fire people, uh, couldn't fire professors for their beliefs. Uh, during the Red Scare, for example, a lot of the uh, people who fired communist professors, their argument was, well, they're too doctrinaire. Like, like they're going to indoctrinate right. the, they're going to indoctrinate their students. Obviously, we can fire them for that. And it was only a case called Sweezy v. New Hampshire in 1957. The famous, famous case, academic yeah. freedom case. Paul Sweezy. Um, that led to that started establishing the the law protecting academic freedom and campus free speech. So it's only. Can, can you say or, more about that case? Sure, I think our listeners would love to hear. Oh, uh, the Paul Sweezy case. This is a case. Um, it, it, it's at University of New Hampshire. It was a professor who um, you know advocated for armed overthrow of the government, but he was a famous you know a, a, a famous communist professor. Um, and. The uh, and he was, you know, uh, 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 they were trying to discipline at University of New Hampshire. I, um, I think so. I, 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 you, you know the details better than I do. Well, I think the, that's right. Unfortunately, I haven't revisited it in a while. Um, and the uh, one of the things that's also interesting about the Red Scare is that um, 
it was one of those situations where a lot of the push to get people fired came from off campus. And in some cases, universities actually were pretty brave in the face of attempts to get their professors uh, fired. Right. And, I, and I think that's one of the reasons why not that many professors were fired for 9-11 because, and we're watching this happen right now, by the way, when the force comes from off campus, universities suddenly get very brave and they rediscover um, their academic freedom. It's when the voices for firing people come from on campus that they tend to be their most cowardly and compliant. That's really interesting. And, that, and, that, and like that, the case from the Red Scare, that's an example where people are being fired in the name of academic freedom. Yes. They're saying you're not you're not upholding the ideal of a professor who's encouraging their students to think for themselves exactly. because you're doc- indoctrinated and you're trying to push an agenda that's pre-established. So those are that's a scare uh, that's a wave of firings, a cancellations, let's say, yeah. based on defended by academic freedom at least at the time. This is the way thought, yeah. And now's the opposite. Yeah. But one thing else I wanted to ask you about, when I think about the red, that analogy you make mm-hmm. uh, about the Alien Sedition Act era, the, the Red Scare era, and our current era, when I think about those eras, it's not the numbers that strike me about why it was so bad, those things were so bad. It's mm-hmm. the, there was something just bad about that kind of culture occurring, the, yeah. the culture of intolerance. And I just feel like I'm not sure, are we, are we there yet in our culture? Or are we still accepting the moral high ground that these cancelers claim to be perched upon? Yeah. Well, I mean, another interesting little little factoid from that very same massive study that uh, Lazar Field and someone else did, did in, in the 1950s of the Red Scare um, was that about 9% of professors said that they were self-censoring um, or toning down the, in their papers. Nine. Now, nine is bad, though. Wow. Like, nine is one in ten, you know, almost. Um, <laughs> and, and, and you know, if you, if you know what the polling generally looks like, you know, 9% is actually pretty bad. But when we compared it to, um, I mean, it's like four times as many are saying they're self-censoring in papers now. And when it comes to are you self-censoring, period, are you self-censoring in your um, – and sometimes people on the on the Twitters will, will be kind of like, well, that means just not being rude. It's like, no, the way the question is asked is, are you self-censoring your political opinions and or beliefs generally? And th- the last study that we looked at, it's like 91% of professors are saying that they're self-censoring. So even though uh, the Red Scare was a much more terrifying time in a lot of ways, and certainly the underappreciated element of the Red Scare that I think everybody should know more about is the Lavender Scare. That was the period in which a lot of gay employees um, lost their jobs, partially out of the theory that that if uh, you know the communists found out that you were gay, they could blackmail you. This is really well covered in um, uh, J- Jamie Kirtrick's uh, book, uh, Secret City, which I really I don't, I don't know. It's it's super interesting. Nice. I, I, you should have Jamie on. Like nice. it's a it's a it's a beautiful book. It's a, actually it's it's this wonderful kind of like history where it's super interesting, super fun read. Um, it's it's it takes place in D.C. and I'm, I'm a um, and I live in D.C. and I love it. Anyway, so um, I was going to say what's not to like, but then you told me it's in D.C. So I'm sorry. Sorry. <laughs> I love New York, too. I, I, lo- I love my city, man. But I'm raising my kids in D.C. Anyway, so um, it, uh, and the, the thing that's uh, and I'm writing about this on my Substack, the eternally radical idea um, on different mass censorship incidents in, in history. And one of the things that makes cancel culture so weird is it's a mass censorship period. Um, that isn't a national security scare. It isn't a major war. Um, that generally, the, the, there are reasons uh, historically why you actually have a lot of people losing their job all at the same time. None of them applied uh, during cancel culture, with the possible exception towards the end of well, COVID was yeah, COVID was a pandemic, and I, and I don't think there was well. 
Now I'm thinking about the Pomerades were kind of at the same time as the Spanish flu. Anyway, sorry. Um, so um, an example of cancel culture, or a case study you talk about yeah. is an incident at Hamline University. Yeah. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Sure. Now, th this is a case, um, uh, Professor Louise Prater. Um, she uh, had an art history class. Um, she put in the syllabus that they were going to cover uh, Muslim art as well. Um, she's uh, told students, if you don't want to be part of this class, you absolutely don't have to be. Um, it was in the syllabus. It was repeated during the class. It was repeated the day before the class. Um, nobody took advantage of not uh, of, of opting out the, the day that she was going to show the so art. So she gave everything that could be described as a trigger warning, yeah. I might be, if you had to put it that way. Yeah. Um, and the, 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 the interesting thing is the painting itself is a 14th century, it's 14th century devotional art. Um, uh, commissioned by a Muslim prince and painted by a, a, a by a Muslim, um, and she showed it in her class. And then a student did get upset. Uh, and then next thing you know, you know, uh, she's uh, uh, she, they've decided that they're not going to renew her contract, and very explicitly, not not hiding the ball at all. Like this is why. And she was an adjunct, as many professors are adjunct adjunct positions now. She wasn't a tenured professor. Yeah, and uh, and, and of course you had all the all the kind of normal. An unfortunate uh, cancel culture signatures like the talk back, you know, incident where it's it's supposed to, it, it's framed like it's going to be a dialogue, but it's really more like a diatribe against the professor where the conclusions, even a professor like who stood up and said this was completely within bounds was told, you know, like the basically to shut up more or less. And there's something positive about this case in that. Even though the professor lost her job, the good news is that the you know fire heterodox the AUP ACLU like even even uh, the the one of the local chapters of CARE the the Council for um, uh, uh, Arab Islamic Relations um, uh, came out and said no no this is this is not appropriate um, and the president uh, and the, and the pressure was so bad the president actually announced that she was going to be stepping down. Early, Thaneese uh, Miller, yeah, who was I knew I knew her years ago when she was a oh a, you did a, a beginning administrator at Brown. What was she like? Uh, she was very progressive before wokeness was a thing, and when I heard that she was involved in this incident and made some of the claims she did, I'm afraid I wasn't surprised. To oh, hear that's them. a shame. Yeah, I don't, I don't know her well, but my impression wasn't that strong. Well, and this is and this is where like the the fact that my you know, my dad's Russian and my mother's British comes out. I, I start saying things like Americans, you know. Um, and one thing that I, I've always found kind of funny, particularly in, in a, like elite education, was a lot of times Americans think they know a lot about what the rest of the world looks like but they're kind of parochial. And how often I ran into the idea that kind of like, well, no, well, of course this case happened. All Muslims are offended by devotional art, you know? And it's like, that's just not true. Like it's a, right. it's a big universe of people out there. Another incident you talk about early in the book is um, about a University of Virginia student, Emma Camp, yeah. who wrote an op-ed. Can you tell us a little bit about, about her experience? I'm not sure it was ca a cancellation by your definition. but it, It's but, not a cancellation uh, by definition. You, tell but, us about that. Um, so uh, Barry Weiss um, and, at the Free Press did a excerpt from, from, uh, from the book, and she actually takes from that chapter. that we It's uh, chapter one, I think, or chapter two. It's the gaslighting of the American mind. Because um, and the point of that chapter is to say it's really kind of crazy that for a while there, even saying cancel culture existed was a cancelable offense or at least something that was like basically treated like heresy. And we open up by first talking about the 
Um, when the New York Times came out and said cancel culture it, it, editorial um, uh, that said cancel culture is real, the polling is very clear, um, threats come from both left and right, and we should take this more seriously. It was a ringing free speech defense of free speech by the New York Times. Yeah, and, and bless it, you know, like I, I was excited, but also it was citing their own data. And meanwhile, their data was very much in line with all the other polling that had been done on the topic. So it you know, should have been uncontroversial or so I thought. But next thing you know, you got Keith Oberman and all sorts of other people coming out. Uh, Alan Davidson saying that they would have quit if they still worked at the New York Times right. for, for this. Um, so people saying that, oh, this is just the opinion of assorted rich fools. Um, they, uh, and, and just really condemning the New York Times for saying this fairly obvious fact. There were some racial elements, too. They would say this, is, this was white speech for free speech and things like there that. There was a lot of that, which was great, because like originally, and, and Nico Perino recommended I take this line out because it, maybe it sounded too snarky, but the, like all six of the first people we list attacking this were all privileged white men um, right, right. calling everybody else on, on their privilege, you know, and it's like, oh, okay, Keith Oberman is kind of the definition <laughs> of a privileged white man. Hi, Keith. Um, the, uh, <laughs> so, um, uh, and the Emma Camp story, uh, we, we sort of go back only about a week earlier, they'd come out with an article by Emma Camp, a UVA student and a, and a former fire intern, um, now at Reason, a political liberal by, 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 by every measure. I know her personally. Um, I'll kind of say, I'm, I'm sure if you noticed, but in the in our in the seminar room for the Center for Academic Pluralism behind my desk, I actually have a photograph of Emma Camp. Aww. I'm giving her a prize. She's a very nice I'm, person. I'm giving her, I'm handing her an award for an opening career award that Heterodox Academy gives. But I, I love that picture I have of her. I, I haven't talked to her since I gave her the award, actually. But but she's but she's lovely, and, and I thought the piece she wrote was fantastic. I got I got I got to see her actually this past weekend, um, and I got to meet her husband, her new husband, for the first nice. time. And she's nice. she, she's like just one of the sweet, just she's one of the sweetest people I know. So what happened with her? Well, in this case, um, she wrote an article again that should not have been controversial, where she said, I came to UVA expecting to have like these really meaty, hearty debates with people. And instead, I find people being uh, being a kind of enforced silence and people not being particularly curious and being afraid to say what they really think. Also, something that I feel like if you've been on a college campus in a while, you'd be like, okay, yeah, that's, that sounds plausible. And instead, this too was treated as if it was, um, you know, uh, 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 it, it too was treated as if it was blasphemy, essentially, to make this argument. And they went very hard at Emma herself. Yes. And the way that they, uh, but, and when we get to this, the idea of the perfect rhetorical fortress, they use stage one of the perfect rhetorical fortress, which is if I can think, you know, declare you a right wing, even if you're nowhere right. near that, I don't have to think about you anymore. That's right. I don't have to take you seriously anymore. And, and um, meanwhile, kind of like, I'm trying to, uh, like, I kind of said this really, really well, but we could all see this happening. It's like, okay, no, she's actually not a conservative. Um, but then there's this kind of like, and so what if she was like all these people are trying to like figure out a way that the entire argument hinged on whether or not they could dismiss her as conservative because if they could actually label her that then they didn't have to think about her anymore and i was like this is a childish way to argue and i was guilty of this myself when i was in law school i totally this is something that intellectuals and, and uh otherwise educated people do all the time and it's and it's utterly foolish but it's been so effective and people are so scared of this of, of this technique. Um, it, it's being overused. And right. I just re read an article that was, you know, um, calling the ACLU and The New York Times, you know, a, a right, right wing rags, essentially. <laughs> like, love, 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 and because worked on everybody else. So, right. you know, why not declare right. you that? So it's a version of ad hominem. Yeah. But 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 
you but deployed in a particular way to, to to discredit the person's position without without addressing it all. Yeah. Um, maybe we'll come back to Emma's situation, but I wonder about uh, thinking about how cancel culture works. Yeah. And you just referred to the perfect rhetorical fortress. Yeah. Can you just tell us a bit? bit about, that's one of the great concepts in the book. Can you say a bit about the perfect well, rhetorical the, fortress? This was fun, and I have, and I have height. I love, I love the name, for yeah. one thing, but then what, what, what is that about? I have height to thank for adding the word rhetorical, because I, I started talking about this. I used to just call it the perfect fortress theory, um, that essentially on on the left, among in the blue bubble that I live in, there are all sorts of these cheap techniques for not addressing someone's the substance of someone's actual argument. And that we try to situate, we try to get people to rethink what cancel culture functions as. And cancel culture is just the nastiest, meanest way to win arguments without winning arguments by essentially eliminating your opponent, the person you disagree with, by scaring them out of disagreeing with you and scaring other people out of disagreeing with you, or just taking them off the field by making sure they don't have a job or they're no longer a professor or whatever. But we want to situate this in a larger kind of approach to, as we say, winning arguments without winning arguments um, and ways to uh, dodge argument. Um, and uh, we first talk about things that the right and the left do, and those are, you know, that includes standard logical fallacies, which we call the obstacle um, uh, obstacle course. Then we go to the, the obstacle the obstacle course, and then we go to the minefield, which are the kind of ad hominem techniques that both left and right use on social media, and that includes things um, like hypocrisy projection, um, which is a term we made up for the book, which I'm proud of, which is essentially that person on social media who never cares about anything other than their side of the political fence but thinks everyone else is a hypocrite without having done their homework anytime a case um, comes up. And what I mean by this is say like, nice. let's, let's take like the Stockwell Act in Florida. How many people we had pop up um, uh, and say, and who had never cared about any threat from any other di- direction on campus, like where's fire on the Stockwell Act? And having to point out we're, we're, we defeated it in court. I'm not really sure what more we could do. And by the way, that thing that you're sending around, we're quoted in the third line. That that's right. that's actually us. And you and both and both left and right do this. The, the right will do this a lot with, with us being like, "Where's you know, where's fire on, on the case of this right winger?" And I got one actually about where where where, where were you when, when I and Hersey Ali got got um uh, disinvited uh, from Brandeis back in 2014. I'm like, here's my three part series on it in the Washington Post actually. Um, so those are the, the and also like just uh, and just accusations of bad faith, uh, like how quickly you, I, I have to always say grifters exist, but like how quickly you'll find people who are of impeccable character, like our friend David French, you know, immediately labeled grifter if people don't like sure. you know what they have to say. But the perfect rhetorical fortress is the one is the version of it that is special to the left. And it involves layer after layer of uh, ad hominem and identity-based ways of dismissing people. And we take the reader through the demographic funnel, essentially talking about, first, of course, you can dismiss anybody for being conservative. Next, um, and we give actual examples of dismissing someone if they're white, if they're cis, if they are, depending on their um, uh, on their sexuality, and all the way down. Uh, and we actually give the numbers on, on this, on, on how, 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 how many people you eliminate with each additional step. Numbers based on actual demographics. Proportions in the the population? Yeah, exactly. Wow. And we get down to about 0.9% of the population um, can pass through the demographic funnel. But then there's a surprise at the end of the funnel, which is, surprise, actually, even if you're in this 0.9%, if you're you're a non-white cis person, you're going to get it even worse if you have a non-complying opinion, because then they can do the very 
old-fashioned Marxist trick of saying you have internalized misogyny, right. you have false consciousness, basically. You have um, uh, you have internalized transphobia. Um, you have internalized racism, as Camille Foster was told, and that's and and that's just on step six. And I think we have eight more steps after that um, that, that you can also be disqualified for. And that's why we call it perfect because there's if you decide to deploy this, you don't ever have to get to the other side uh, argument at all ever. That's right. Yeah, it's one of the most striking parts of the book, I thought, for me, sort of when I was reading through that, to see the way you dissect each one of these sort of deployed strategies and peeling it away and peeling it away. And as you say, it, it's a way of not even getting close to the conversation mm-hmm. that I mean, these conversations are meant to, to bring us to a better understanding, to, to extend our knowledge. But the perfect rhetorical fortress seems to make it impossible to move to move at all yeah. you know one of the things you one other section that was interesting you talk about the covid the, the whole covid covid experience the great barrington declaration and that what you use to what you use those that, that the, those examples to show is about this the importance of trust um within a epistemic a society that's epistemic institutions so trust and expertise is something that we need if we're going to have if institutions are going to tie us to reality, we need to have trust and the expertise of those yes. to some degree. We need skepticism too. Sure. That's part of the intellectual world. But we need some level of trust and expertise. So can you say something about trust and expertise and what COVID did COVID it weakened it, I gather. Yeah. But can you just say more about the, about how that happened, that story? This is the reason why, even if you're sure you'll never be canceled, and by the way, you shouldn't be. Um, it, it can happen to even people that don't, don't expect it from directions they don't expect. But still, even if you're pretty sure you'll never be canceled, you are still harmed by cancel culture because it uh, undermines people's faith and, ex- and, and expertise. And I, and I explain how. Like, and, and I always give the example of Carol Hooven, uh, you, you know, who, who's been on your podcast. Um, you know, when she uh, went, when she was talking about her book, she's an evolutionary biologist. She talked about her book, Testosterone. Um, she she went to promote it, and she talked about how we should be um, uh, we should be compassionate and and thoughtful and use uh, trans people's pronouns. And, and she gave a very compassionate pitch, but then also said that we also have to um, we can't deny that biological sex isn't isn't a scientific fact. And immediately a DI administrator at Harvard yeah. uh, started calling her out for it. A and graduate student. And immediately the the, the classic uh, cancel culture mechanisms take, uh, start t- taking place. Uh, students start signing petitions to get her punished or fired. Uh, people refuse. Uh, students refuse to work uh, to to um, uh, to actually TA her class. The administration doesn't stand up for uh, for her. Steve Pinker does. Um, uh, Jeff Flyer does. Um, and, and and a couple others actually do stand up for her. But for the most part, she's abandoned um, at, even by some friends still talk about like and they've yes. found this incredibly depressing and she doesn't even count as one of our successful cancellations in our data because she got sufficiently depressed that she she withdrew voluntarily um and i always talk about that yes that is a very uh, tragic thing and and carol is a wonderful person so it makes me very sad personally but it does something else the public watching this says to themselves when the when Scientific American comes around and says actually gender uh, biological sex is on a spectrum just like gender, um, the public is saying to themselves, but the last person to say anything other than that got canceled even at Harvard. Right. Why should I believe you're being objective and honest with me? And that's if it happens only once. Um, if uh, We talk about more than a thousand examples. We also make the point that one in six, one in six professors say that they have been either threatened with punishment um, for their academic freedom or actually investigated. We actually just finished a study that's that brand new where we found that about nine, about 9% of uh, students say the same thing. And people who are f- maybe from this era, that's like, I, I don't think they understand that when you're talking about one in 10 saying they've actually been threatened with 
punishment for what they said. Right. I, I, I'm not familiar with, an, with, with a, another era that looks, at least in American history, looks anything like that. And so um, the, COVID's, the COVID experience yes. drove down trust and pu- public trust. Mm-hmm. The mask mandate and the, 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 the first announcement saying we don't need masks. But we, we were epistemically arrogant in the way we talked about this stuff. Uh, say, say more about that. Yeah. Um, well, we give the example in, in, in this case of, um, of, of the masks that, that essentially how dead certain people were that I knew that masks did no good whatsoever right at the beginning of COVID because that was the that was the government line early on and people forget this. And meanwhile, you know, a lot of us were like, that can't, but wait, they don't do any good, but you need them for, for personnel, for no. personnel. Okay. Um, <laughs> you could have also leveled with us and, and, and said that we need to keep these for personnel. And, and that would have, wouldn't have undermined a trust, but since it felt, felt so transparently like, Oh, well, you're just, you're kind of, you're, this is a no, this is a noble lie, but 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 at the same time, that's going to like if people think the government is going to lie to you for your own good, that is utterly to- toxic so, to trust. So Plato talks about the noble lie. This yeah. was this was like a noble obvious lie. Yeah, because we're all like saying, oh, because you that need something else. It, 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 we couldn't even grasp that. It's like, oh, so you're you're just trying saying to us, please don't buy this stuff for yourselves because we need them for the other. But I would have been convinced by but that. But I didn't say it that way. Yeah. And we talk about the case of Jennifer Say, for example. Um, and Jennifer Say was someone, uh, she was a Levi's, a Levi's executive. Um, she, you know, uh, she'd been a loud proponent of the rights of kids and uh, of, of public education. And when they decided to close, to, to close down the, the, due to the lockdowns, to close down the schools, she was one of the early people saying, you know, uh, that this is going to harm children. And it's going to harm the disadvantaged kids the most. And this was treated in 2020 like it was blasphemy, like it, like it was heresy to say this. And of course, it was racist somehow, which seemed very particularly strange. Um, and that she wanted black children to die. Uh, like she talks about like being accused of like being supporting genocide somehow. And, and she eventually uh, stepped down from Levi's. She was offered a severance, but she wouldn't take it. She wanted to, she wanted to tell her story. And meanwhile, of course... What we know now is that most experts look back on this and say, um, oh, yeah, actually, I, I think practically all of them do. The, the learning loss was devastating um, to, to, to young people. She was absolutely right in, in, in that accusation. But and I was trying to point out, like, even if she'd been wrong, um, it was still it would still harm faith in experts because the response with so much certainty that this had to be wrong at a time when any thinking person knew that we simply did, there was there, the truth was in 2020 there was a lot of stuff we didn't know right and and that the one thing we could be pretty confident on so, so like the the utterly certain re, uh, reaction to early people saying the lab leak theory now when i talk about the lab leak theory i'm not saying cuz i know or um that, that the labs uh, it actually was a lab leak what i'm saying is has there been a massive investigation of, of Wuhan? Has um, and there certainly hadn't been. Everyone knew that hadn't happened in April of 2020. But what had mean that there had not been a massive investigation? There had been a the, the, right. There had been right. There had been a massive investigation, but the certainty I'd see even from some friends, kind of like, well, we know that's not true. I'm like, huh. okay. <laughs> You can say we suspect that's not true. Um, we have evidence that it's not true, but the dead certainty it's not true that some people acted with. You know, I'm like, you know, that destroys trust in, in, in your authority right there because everyone knows you don't know that as as, as confidently as you're saying you do. Don't don't you think it's important that that those 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 incidents were all taking place in the era of Trump's presidency, yeah. where he was saying certain things, and he'd also been. 
um, kind of a master about throwing in untruths within truths and all the yeah. kind of complicated stuff he, he was doing then. That seemed to affect the way perhaps people interpreted those things. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, we, are, we have three chapters on uh, cancel culture from the right and one that's practically all about Trump. And in the, and in the chapter about COVID, we talk about how, how much worse um, Trump managed to make it by having weird certain statements um, coming out of basically nowhere. Another thing I want, another incident you talk about on one of your many just great case studies. There are case studies that are often familiar to us, but then I find when I read your treatment, your, your, you and Ricky's treatment of these things, I read, I thought about the case in better and deeper ways. That so happened to me again and again as I read your book. Well, thank you. But on the Stanford Law, Stanford Law case, uh, you know, the, the, the case of um, uh, Kyle Duncan being invited to, invited to campus, yeah. uh, federal appeals court judge. One of my former students from Brown was a first year uh, at Stanford Law in the front row as this was unfolding. So was he in the so Federal hearing, Society? Yes. So oh. I, I won't say his name, but he was there. Yeah. And I was you know, hearing from him. Tell us a little bit about, about that case. Remind our listeners what happened and, and just tell us how you how you think about it. Well, it, it, it's, I, I do want to, since I mentioned it twice, but I really want to emphasize, Ricky Schlott, my co-author, 23-year-old genius, you know, um, who I got to write this with, it, it was amazing. We had such a good working relationship and she's such a rising star. Like, like I feel very lucky to get to, to, to write with her. Well, um, I think one of the things I've enjoyed about coming to New York and taking this job is I run into her and many other people, oh, but, I, but I run into her at various meetings and things like, oh, who's a smart person? Yeah. No, <laughs> and she, she, and how, is she, how old is this person? It's just, I, well, I, remember, I remember actually telling Roush that I was writing my, my, my book with a then 20 year old. And he was like, I'm like no, wait, just wait, just wait till you meet her. She's she's humble and she like incredibly easy to work with. She was much more mature about writing a book than I was because because I, I, I find a, I find writing books kind of hell in some ways. And I'm a kind of a, a wreck during the whole process. And she was a, she was a rock. During but one of the things one of the things that you, you, you two working together allowed you to do in the book, one of the things I really enjoyed was that you would sometimes say, uh, you know, my generation, I think of it this way, and yeah. Ricky's generation sees it this way. So you, it kind of gave you as co-authors, yeah. like a, a, not intergenerational, but, you know, a, a gap in years of looking at these things, which threw light on the changes that have happened. I thought that was really helpful. Well, well one of the things she, she said when I, since our definition of cancel culture begins in 2014, she always like said the caveat. Uh, but me being Gen Z, I grew up with this, and that essentially the the 2014 was Gen Z hitting campus in large numbers. Good. But but a lot of these sort of cancel culture habits were, if they feel like junior high school, it's partially because they were in junior high schools <laughs> back in 2010, and then you know and now we all live in junior high school. So tell, but, so but tell back us, to, tell back us to Stanford. Tell, you know, tell us about Stanford, your university. Yeah, uh, Stanford Law School. Um, you know, I was probably the happiest lawyer, like law student you've ever met. I I, um, I, I can imagine that. I, 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 I mellowed out in law school. I loved being out there. I had a ball. I loved San Francisco. I actually moved like a lot of the well, the cool kids do. You move up there and commute down. Um, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm proud of my alma mater, and I was really ashamed of how we handled you know, this situation. And you would think that a conservative judge had never spoken at Stanford Law School. That's what it seemed like. It, it, some strange alien had come dropped exactly. out of the out of the heavens. And I and I, and I think you will be shocked to know that actually they speak. You know, conservative judges speak at Stanford pretty regularly. Um, and in this case, it's a little worse because he's a Fifth Circuit judge, which I really have to stress because that's one level below the Supreme Court. A Fifth, a, a fifth Circuit judge is no, is no joke. But he's Kyle Duncan. He, he, he is a conservative judge for sure. He doesn't agree with us on a lot of free speech cases lately as well. Um, and he's a Trump appointee uh, and he has some controversial opinions. Um, and when the mean, opinions are controversial and the, and the Democrat and the left leaning norms on campus. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Just want to specify well, that. Don't we all, um, the, the, um, 
Uh, and when uh, the Federal Society invited him to, to come to campus, um, uh, uh, the immediately the first attempt was to get him disinvited and get this. Uh, the, uh, so, you know, cancel number one was the classic. Just don't invite this person. They're going to be a harm to the, to, to the community. Then uh, administrators started meeting with students um, it, it, for hours on end to figure out, like, what to do uh, about this. Um, the students who didn't want Kyle Duncan speaking there put up posters with the faces uh, of the Federal Society members there, which is important to remember when people talk about doxing. And of course, when they ask me my opinion about it, I don't like this tactic, but can they do it? Sure, they can. Um, and then uh, after, again, after hours of meeting with, 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 the, with many on the DEI staff at the law school, including um, uh, Tyrion Steinbach, um, they, there was about a fifth of the class was present um, they, uh, to heckle and, and shout at, at uh, Judge Duncan. As he's coming in, you know, two students uh, t- you know, tell him, I hope your daughters get raped. Right. Um, you know, and there, and there's also lots of things like some guys, you know, shouting out kind of like, I, you know, I, I can find the prostate. Why can't you find the clit? Yes, like all this yes, really yes. profoundly immature kind, right. kind of stuff as well. I just, 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 yeah. just, just interrupt to say that, that this is, you know, part of the, the irony or the, the complication of this case is, is that people on the, the, the woke community were often getting their moral, moving up on the moral high ground. By claiming to be the sensitive ones, they're the yeah. ones who are more aware of sensitivity. We should be watching our language because we're not sensitive enough. And then occasionally, the mask of sensitivity melts from their face in these moments where you see these horrific really attacks cruel. on their families. Nothing sensitive about it at all. Yeah, and and going particularly at the Federal Society members who who, who had who had invited um, Doug in the first place. So about a, you know about a fifth of the class is, is, is there for the shutdown part. The shutdown, by the way, lasts almost exactly ten minutes. Then, at the end of 10 minutes, Tyrion Steinbach gets up. Um, uh, some of the students make a big deal out of the fact that he doesn't immediately recognize her as an administrator. Well, of course he didn't recognize her as an administrator because Kyle Duncan in advance had gotten a promise from the administration that if students did show up to disrupt it, that they would be given one warning and then told to stop and and, and, and ex- escorted out. Um, and I think they, they tried to take this and run with it by having it, okay, but we're going to give them 10 minutes before right. this. So Tyrion Steinbach gets up. Ten minutes before the first warning. Before the first warning. Um, and then uh, she gets up and she reads a pre-prepared speech, which everyone needs to needs to listen to because it's this, it's trying to be folksy and it's and it's talking about like is the juice worth ju- the squeeze? Yeah, is the juice of free speech worth worth the squeeze of the harm you're causing my community, or is the juice of having a Fifth Circuit judge talk to future lawyers worth the squeeze of I, I don't know again? And it and it was really funny because like the, the, it was basically blaming you're causing the pain, you know, like That's like right. the, you're causing the difficulty by your presence, and therefore a Fifth Circuit judge shouldn't come and speak here. And it's kind of like no, again, uh, conservative professors, uh, conservative judges have spoken at Stanford routinely in the past. And it's a seven-minute speech. So you're 17 minutes into this guy hasn't had a chance to talk yet. Um, He, I think, correctly says this is a setup, you know, um, and pretty much was. Um, And then after that point, they just heckle him, you know, for the remaining 15 minutes of questions. And it's 
it's embarrassing. It's immature. It's not, uh, not at all the way you're supposed to handle an incident like, like, like this at all. Um, but we take it as an opportunity to show the perfect rhetorical fortress at work. And one of the later steps of the perfect rhetorical fortress is what we call the don't get angry step. The don't get angry step. Yeah. That, that essentially, and you'll watch this tactic get used a lot, that if someone finally snaps and just gets mad at the people who are, um, uh, uh, who, who are just acting like this, then that becomes the story. And the San Francisco Chronicle like talked about, oh, uh, Kyle Duncan got exactly what he wanted out of this. And it's like, really? No, I think he wanted to actually give a talk. I've read the talk. It was an interesting, a little boring He fired back at them pretty sharply. Oh, he did. Well, he did. But at the same time, it's like, these are are also people who just said, I hope your daughters get raped. And so what, what, would you think, what do you think about the Stanford administration response? Jenny Martinez was involved and some others, but do you? Jenny Martinez's first response we thought was so-so. Um, and then because uh, she had responded somewhat, you know, pointing out that this was not, you know, appropriate for the students to do, do this, immediately, you know, um, uh, the students turn on her um, and making the argument that uh, counter speech is free speech. And it's kind of like, well, no kidding, counter speech is free speech, but shouting someone down is not, <laughs> is none of the above, people. Um, and there was enough kind of backlash after that. And, you know, I think probably the experience of being also personally targeted as well led to a much better response from yes. Jenny Martinez. Quite striking, I thought. Uh, yeah. And, and it's, a, it's like a 10 page. In some ways, it's kind of embarrassing that you have to do a remedial sort of explanation of freedom of speech and free inquiry. And also things like uh, the Calvin Report values of, a, of being politically neutral as an institution. And it's a, it's a really good statement. And Tyrion Steinbach was put on leave. She then wrote an article for the Wall Street Journal that was claiming that she was um, trying to, like, to vindicate free speech and this whole thing. It was, it, was, it was a bizarre PR piece to, to, to read that did not reflect the facts at all. Um, and uh, and one thing that very rarely happens that did happen here that that uh, is a somewhat hopeful sign is that Tyrion Steinbach has not been invited back uh, to uh, to Stanford. And I think. And this is and this is actually a really important thing that I, I think I say in the book, but it's worth repeating. Every time there is a shout down at a university or a cancel campaign or a tenured professor is being targeted for losing their job or, you know, uh, the every university in the country should immediately investigate. Did our administrators do anything to stop this or damp it down to actually, you know, Argue back even. Just say, like, listen, they, you know, Carol Hooven, uh, Kyle Duncan, like, they're, they're, they were invited here for an, for, to fill our academic uh, uh, function. They should make sure, see if they did anything to damp that down. And then they should also be sure that they investigate, did they actually help create this situation? Because Good. one thing I've seen for, because uh, FIRE will be 25 years old next year. Wow. wow. And, and how often it is that it, uh, DI administrators in particular actually are helping these things come along. They're encouraging it, which is why when I saw someone talking about attempts to reduce DEI administration, I, I saw someone who I really respect, but they referred to this as a um, infringement of a public college's uh, academic freedom. I'm like, no, you have to remember that if you're talking about administrators, that oftentimes those administrators are part of the problem. They're part of the threat to free speech and academic freedom on campus. So, so you can't actually, um, it, it, it's a missing part of people's understanding what's going on. It's not just, it's not just that people misunderstand that about um, me and Heights coddling the American mind is we're saying, oh, now the students are bad since 2014. I'm like, no, it's actually this, 
combination of administrators who were already bad when it came to academic freedom in too many cases, not all of them, to be clear, but uh, enough of them, uh, and then meeting a more compliant and more uh, more or less, <laughs> less pro-free speech um, uh, student cohort. And it's been terrible since. I think that, that moves us kind of perfectly to the, to the question about Lenin's question, what, what is to be done? Yeah. But, but before we go there, I just want to, just want to mention to, to our listeners that there's so much more in that middle section of the book that we're not covering today. Um, this is discussion, this great discussion of the efficient rhetorical fortress. The one on the some, right. a, a, a lot of just really wonderful, wonderful material. And the conformity gauntlet. Do you want to mention a word about that? The, 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 the conformity Actually, gauntlet is one, one that we're probably going to be, um, Actually, I would love your feedback on the next draft of it because um, we were planning to run it as an excerpt in Reason, but now we want to update it with like the latest data about how much worse it is. And we basically take a theoretical um, uh, high schooler and try to put them through all the conformity-inducing nice. pressures they would experience nice. all the way up to becoming a scientist and then wow. trying to publish and say – um, nature, human behavior, for example, right. um, and point out like how many just hoops you'd have to jump over. We also make the point that DEI statements, for example, I mean, I think most people don't need, they immediately understand, obviously there's no way to do a DEI statement the way the question is asked that isn't a political mistest. But if you're skeptical, uh, Nate Honeycutt at FIRE, and this was actually before he was at FIRE, did an experiment to figure out um, he got something like 30, almost like 3,500 professors to participate in this to evaluate different DEI statements about whether or not they um, would get you past the first hurdle um, to, uh, get, uh, th that in some of these DEI um, evaluation uh, procedures, you, you, you get taken off the top. Um, if, if they don't like your DEI statement. So a whole bunch of people, so the, the way that the structure works, a whole bunch of people apply for a job. The DEI sort of makes a, makes a first cut. Yeah. A bunch are remo removed from competition immediately, and then they go on and they get further cuts yeah. as well. Well, and, and, and uh, this is especially interesting in the Heterodox Academy, too, is that they, uh, Nate did five different kinds of DEI statements. One that you might call, you know, a woke version of it, like, a, uh, like Tim Urban's social justice fundamentalist, basically a very doctrinaire kind of identity-based uh, intersectional uh, intersection sectional analysis. Then sort, he, sort of naked force, forced speech. Yeah. And then he did uh, several others. One was on viewpoint diversity. One was on uh, socioeconomic diversity. Uh, one was on religious diversity. And the only one that would get you through the door um, more than 50% of the time, almost would almost always get you through the door, was the one that could be described as the woke one. The viewpoint diversity one was um, rejected 52% of the time. Uh, so only 48% of people would even make it to the interview um, in, in that. It was similar numbers for the religious diversity. The socioeconomic diversity one did slightly better, but not much. It was more like, you know, re rejected 40% of the time. Um, wow. And that breaks my heart because if there is a kind of diversity that's sorely lacking and particularly in elite higher education is socioeconomic yes. diversity. Yes. So, so we point out that that's, a, a, and DEI statements are now required in, uh, in admissions and jobs and even attending some conferences. Um, and that's just one of multiple pressure conformity inducing devices. When, if you actually want a better marketplace of ideas in higher ed, it's gotta be non-conformity inducing uh, pressures. Um, so we're thinking about Lenin's, Lenin's question, what is to be done? Um, you guys talk about um, the idea of having free speech rules and laws, but also having a free speech culture. Yeah. Can you say something about the interaction of those two and what, what sure. the difference is and why we need both? So I've had um, in, interesting debates, uh, you know, with our friend uh, Ken White, for example, over at Reason about free speech uh, culture. And, you know, his argument is essentially that free speech culture is kind of an incoherent concept. And 
uh, and I and neither of us understand each other on this one because I'm kind of like they're not being free speech cultures in a coherent concept to me because it's like where do you think the First Amendment came from you know like handed down by God an uncreated creator kind of situation we're also a common law country there's no neat 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 and tidy distinction between our culture and our law our culture affects our law okay. um, both in the legislative process but also in the way judges interpret the world and but the ideal situation that you would have is a strong free speech law but also strong free speech culture. And I want to spend a lot more time developing um, what I mean by free speech culture, but the simplest way to explain it are cultural norms um, that put a thumb on the scale for old-fashioned idioms, um, old-fashioned kind of ideas that that are basic to a small-D democratic society. Everyone's entitled to their opinion, um, to each their own, not my cup of tea, don't judge a book by its cover, um, it's a free country. All these little things that we used to say when I was a kid um, and when you were a kid, so much so that they were kind of cliches, but they are actually really good values that remind you to check yourself. Right. I, I'm not the end all be all. I, I have very limited knowledge. I am prone to judgment. I am deeply flawed and I should not be judging you without no oh, another one. Walk a mile in a man's shoes. Like, like the right. idea of you really have to know you, you should check yourself before you think you really understand where someone else is coming from. And uh, so, even, so even if you have free speech rules, like you have campuses where a fire has done its work and they've rolled back those 90s, those 1990s kind of rules that were so became so prevalent before yeah. fire came on the scene and started pushing back on these things. Even if universities have these free speech uh, formal rules, they might not have been, have been encouraging what we call the HXA way. Uh-huh. That is humility. Make make a case. Be humble. Make your case with evidence. Um, take the other person's position seriously. Steel man their argument. Don't yeah. straw man their argument. All those kinds of ways that make the epistemic machinery work better. Because we're not just yelling and shouting at each other, which your free speech allows us to do that. There's lots of reasons for that. But yeah. at the university, there's a special kind of speech we care about, which is speech directed towards this truth-seeking mission, we hope. Yeah. So that's the culture, the special culture of universities that require, that free speech requires. Which which brings us back to probably the the biggest sort of meta-theme of the book, is that cancel culture can never get us towards truth. It wastes time and cognitive energy, and the perfect rhetorical fortress will never get you towards truth. Um, The efficient rhetorical fortress will never get you there. And, and what's the alternative to cancel culture? What's the benefit of actually having argue, arguments based on substance? Not just because it makes us feel better and more virtuous. It's because it might actually solve really important problems in a way that this nonsense that we're currently doing has literally no hope of. That's, that's true. I sometimes say to people, I'd love to hear your take on this, that FIRE and HXA, you know, we work together in all for a whole bunch of different ways. But I think of FIRE as being the... The, the lawyers who get the free speech rules passed yep. and are constantly, but not just free speech, but also academic freedom, academic freedom, including all these aspects of um, just, justice before the law, individuals being treated fairly by proced- and procedural norms. But so fire does those sort of legal norms and HXA works on culture. Yeah. Where, they, where, they, where the membership organization tries to change the way people talk with one another. Our, our values are viewpoint diversity, open inquiry, and constructive disagreement. Yeah. How we do it. And you know, do you think that's right that about, about fires and HXA is respectable? We care about the rules, too, and you care yeah. about the culture, too. But do you see the division of labor roughly in those ways? Uh, yeah. I mean, and definitely sort of like, you know, I, um, I'm i on my big sort of uh, free speech culture uh, campaign. We do talk about it with it within the organization about, like, when we will get involved in a case um, now that we've expanded beyond campus that, uh, no, like it's a, so for example, PayPal um, was saying that it would fine a user's $2,500 
if in their soul, um, uh, in their sole discretion, people engaged in hate speech, misinformation, disinformation. And we're like, okay, legally, can they probably do this? Probably weirdly, sickly enough, yes. Um, are we confident enough that this is way so far over the line of a free speech culture kind of situation that we would actually? So, so we do actually. We, we try to we try to have some broad parameters. That's a great. That's a great case. A great example. Yeah, and and uh, but yeah, no, and it's one of the ways that we you know love working with you guys, and and we, we I do really think we complement each other. I agree, but you know one of one of the things the book uh, really sh- helped me see more deeply is how closely tied those two projects are: the mm-hmm. legal project and the cultural project, because as you say. The laws aren't given, yeah. and the interpretation of the abstract rules written in the Constitution are always going to be contested. That's just sure. what it means to live through time and be, be, be rebuilding the law all the time. And if you lo- if that free speech culture erodes, so people don't value it, or, or they think it's a bad thing, mm-hmm. which is what we're facing often now, then the laws themselves start to become become in danger. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's one of the reasons why I end up saying that in, in a very real sense, free speech culture for the long term is probably more important than free speech law because one won't survive without the other. So your book has lots of um, warning stories, lots of uh, great examples, fantastic analysis. I, I, I felt I felt a hope, I felt a strand of hopefulness through the entire book, despite some all the difficult on depressing things you talk about. Yeah. And it really came to flower to me in this phrase you used toward the very end of the book about the adulthood of the American mind. Yeah. Can you just, let's close by talking a bit about the adulthood of the American mind. What does that mean? The adulthood of the American mind is- I love the phrase. It's it, fabulous. Yeah, it's when we, when we start treating our fellow citizens like we're adults, again, who can handle other rigors of being a free citizen, free and, and uh, citizens in a democratic society. And we, and like an example, and we give a lot of examples of what makes us not feel like we're not being currently treated like an adult. Uh, and I do think that we see this a lot in news media where they essentially will censor the news for us to protect our virgin ears is not treating your fellow Americans like we're adults that we can't live with or handle. So, our so a news story talks about something that someone said was offensive, but we never actually but they hear what never that thing actually was. say what that thing is. And so I'm we like, can't judge whether it's offensive or not. We're yes, just told th- X. Thank you, mommy state. Like, like well, what, what exactly am I supposed to do with that? Can you just say a bit more about the positive vision? What would it mean for, for to have a, 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 an adult adulthood of the American mind culture, what would that be like? Uh, to be able to talk to people, frankly, about real problems in the world without someone jumping on some way to actually exit the argument or win it in some by using some cheap tactic that gets you nowhere near closer to resolution and understanding. Um, you know, like I think that some of the uh, best embodiments of like what uh, an adulthood of the American mind can look like you know, are uh, the the way we act when we actually solve problems in the real world. I mean, we yeah. wanted to focus a little bit on this towards the end, that I think that uh, I, I think that so much of the way pe- people are learning to argue in higher ed, it leads to a kind of hopeless situation because if it's just ideological abstraction, um, it will always, it, 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 it doesn't get you anywhere. But if you're actually being like, how do we make Washington, D.C., 3% safer? How do we make sure that we increase the graduation rates uh, among, uh, you know, uh, poor residents of the district by 4%? Like, like something yeah. specific where you're actually trying to figure out something pragmatic in the real world. That's what the adulthood of the American looks like. The childhood, the, the junior high school of the American mind is the way we're currently arguing. That's very nice. I, I recently gave a talk at the National Governors, Governors Association, and their theme for this year, you may know, is yeah. disagree better. Yes, I like that. And and, and just that idea. And I, when I, when I read that that line about the, yeah. the, about the adult of the American mind, I thought about that initiative, that governor's yes. initiative, because their idea is that when we dis, if we come to disagree better, we become adults. In your term, 
we start doing reasoning together. Yes. And there's the possibility, at least, of us advancing despite our differences rather than just being in walled camps. Yeah. So, um, Greg, it's been really great talking with you. Always a pleasure. Um, congratulations on the book. It's, it's just it's fabulous. It's well, going to be a great read. And thanks for joining me on Heterodox Out Loud. Thanks, John. Thank you for listening to this episode of Heterodox Out Loud. Our aim, as always, is to give you an insider's understanding of the perils and possibilities of open inquiry at universities and colleges. If you like this episode, subscribe to the Heterodox Out Loud podcast. Please leave us a rating and a review. And if you work in higher education, visit the Heterodox Academy website. Join the thousands of professors from all around the world who are working to support open inquiry. Until next time, I'm John Tomasi, reminding you the great minds do not always think alike. Thank you.